0: This is an exciting episode for people that are adventurers and explorers. Today we have Megan Macalones Hernandez with us. Uh, She's built and maintained hiking trails across the country and is currently a National Park Service employee in New Mexico. Working seasonally for almost two decades, she's traveled through 35 countries and 46 states. She loves being outside, has through hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, half of the Continental Divide Trail, and through Paddled, the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. Everyone, uh, you're going to love this episode if you like being outside, exploring, and adventure. Megan, so excited to have you on the GeoTrek podcast today.
1: Hey, Hal. I'm really excited to be here with you.
0: Megan, we wanted to wrap up season number one with some stories on adventure travel. You've just done so much and traveled so broadly that we're actually going to break your stories up into two podcasts. So these are podcast episodes number nine and number 10 of GeoTrek podcast season one. Yeah, you've really done a lot of exploring and you were the first person actually that came to mind because you've been all over the place. You're adventurous and you love exploring.
1: Right on. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome.
0: And uh, Megan, I, I, you and I, even though we've just reconnected here as we're recording this podcast, we've known each other for quite a long time. I was really good friends with your brother, Matt. This was 20 plus years ago. We're all from Pennsylvania. So uh, Southeastern PA, I think you're from Wrightsville, right? On the uh, banks of the Susquehanna River, if I recall.
1: Yeah, exactly. A little river town.
0: So Megan, walk us through, I mean, it seems like you took advantages even from your late teens and early 20s to find ways to get out and explore. If we can kind of zoom in on that time period of of your life where you started, like, I think you were doing seasonal work where you were doing trail maintenance and things like that. What did that part of your life look like in your late teens, early 20s?
1: Yeah, so it all began when I learned about the Student Conservation Association and they're affiliated with all the different national parks and national forests, and they offer internships. So I applied. For one in New Mexico and got it at Bandelier National Monument. And I was a backcountry ranger in 2003. First time on my own out of Pennsylvania. First time in solitude where I'd only see animal footprints, not even human footprints for a whole day, you know? And that is really what kind of projected my life into working outdoors and doing seasonal work and moving around the country. And there at Bandelier, I met the first trail crew um, that I had ever seen, and I love doing landscaping and tree work and things like that in Pennsylvania. And when I saw them out there working on the trails, I'm like, what are you doing? This is amazing. It's like, you know, landscaping in the forest almost, you know, and giving people access to amazing areas. So. I looked into uh, what kind of SEA trails, trail crews existed. And the Florida Trail uh, operates in the wintertime where you can do work in Florida. So that winter I went to Florida and met all kinds of really great people. Then hiked on the Appalachian Trail for a little bit after, after that work season. Led a trail crew in Virginia that summer. Went back to Florida Trail in the fall and winter and just kind of just kept hopping around moving state to state with the seasons i could do trails in the south in the winter and trails in the north in the summer and then i started meeting people that traveled outside the country and realized i could work a summer in the u.s and then in the winter escape the cold and you know the the biggest expense would be the airfare but then Once you get to a country near the equator, it's really only, you know, maybe 10 bucks a night at most for a place to stay, maybe $2 for a huge meal, literally pocket change to ride buses from town to town or city to city, and man I I really love doing that and I did that pretty much my entire 20s.
0: So Megan let's break this down so it sounds like you were doing a lot of seasonal work doing trail maintenance. Is that typically like you join a team where like you're on like a multi-month assignment or something like that?
1: Yeah exactly so anywhere from three to six months um, you're on a crew you live out of a tent or you know some type of like housing that's provided So, you know, in the beginning, I didn't even have my own vehicle. I just had a backpack on my back and I'd I'd road trip with other people headed to the trail crew or yeah i'd I'd find a way to get there
0: <laughs> and it sounds like there were, there it sounds like there's a whole culture kind of involved because you mentioned that you were meeting people that kind of traveled around to these different assignments and then eventually kind of met made some friends that were starting to do international travel i'm I'm guessing you kind of learned the ropes from them or at least heard stories from them about places they went to or, or how they did the international stuff
1: yeah, a lot of it. Uh, was, you know, word of mouth as far as like where I wanted to go next it was like, Oh, you've been there. Ooh, that sounds really cool. Maybe I'll try that one out. Yeah.
0: So Megan, what, what was your first international trip in that time of life? It sounds like you said, you know, you found out, wait, I can do the summer trail maintenance season in the U.S. and then kind of in the winter time take these trips internationally. Do you remember your first international trip where you, you did something like that?
1: The very first one, I mean, I, I didn't cross the border far, but I went into Mexico right across from Big Bend National Park. There's a little town called Boquillas, and I helped teach English over there because a lot of the men in that town would come into the U.S. to help fight wildfires and knowing English really helped them out. So I didn't spend a lot of time there. But I, you know, technically, that's probably the first one. But then Nepal was my first overseas trip. I went for a couple weeks and uh, hiked the, a part of the Annapurna circuit.
0: Do you remember what time of the year it was?
1: Nepal, I was there in the winter, uh, I think February.
0: So did you go solo or did you go with some friends?
1: No, I went with a group there, um, the safety of a group, right? A group of folks from Pennsylvania actually headed over there. They were more like my parents' friends. <laughs> I didn't even know them very well. But. Yeah, well,
0: it was your first time too, though. So I'm sure you're kind of yeah. like, okay, till you get to know the ropes of, you know, dealing with international travel and everything like that. But exactly. there you are in the Paul hiking part of the Annapurna Circuit. Um, was it just breathtakingly beautiful? I mean, that, that's those are the really the highest mountains in the world, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. And at one point, I was in one of the deepest valleys in the world where I had the I believe it's the 10th tallest mountain in the world on one side and the seventh tallest mountain on the other side and I'm there in the river valley between the two it was amazing wow. really did, amazing.
0: did you get to hike through a lot of like villages as well and and then maybe have some yeah. people yeah
1: tiny little villages and this was in the beginning of 2005 and before uh, they hadn't even planned putting a road in yet but in the years Past that they have since put a road in to access more of those villages by a vehicle but then it was all walking and I would watch these men carry huge crates of apples and they put a strap over their foreheads so all the weight is on their head and neck when they're carrying these you know probably 50 100 pound racks of apples it's really wild but one thing that I learned on that trip, that being my first big overseas trip, I packed way too many clothes. And I realized, like, if, if I have too many things in my pack, I'm not going to be able to take home any souvenirs, you know. So right. after that trip, I learned to, to narrow down, only take, like, the bare necessities I need, and then, and then buy things, buy other clothes when I get there. And then you can blend in a little more to the culture of where you're going and have, have great souvenirs to bring home.
0: That's really good advice. And that keeps your luggage weight down, too, I guess, as you're you know flying internationally just to get there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At that point, 2005, so you're about 22 years old or so, so you come back to the States, and then I think you had mentioned that you had uh, done some relief work related with Hurricane Katrina. That's really going to be of interest as well to a lot of our listeners. A lot of our listeners come from the Gulf Coast and have had uh, hurricane impacts at some point in their life. What, What was this work you were doing with the Hurricane Katrina relief?
1: Yeah, so that was actually the following winter. I went down about six months after Katrina hit. So Katrina hit in August 2005, right? And then, so I went into the uh, the winter of 06, and I couldn't believe, even six months later, how many things were so disheveled still down there, you know, with huge piles of trees that had blown over and been uprooted, just, just piled up in, like, the center of town type of thing, you know, not removed yet, and still so many buildings boarded up I mean a lot of areas still look like a ghost town and I actually spent most of my time in Slidell and they had a lot of water fill that town so we went in we were like <clears throat> removing old walls everything that was rotten removing things from buildings and then helping to put new drywall up and things like that.
0: Yeah, so you were there, Slidell, Louisiana, just north of New Orleans. Uh, that whole area yeah. took a huge uh, impact from Hurricane Katrina. It sounds like you had a lot of other like short-term adventures as well, though even internationally during that season of life as well. Yeah,
1: and one thing I like to do while in the country is looking for ways to volunteer. So in Indonesia, they had had that huge tsunami hit. So when I was in Sumatra, um, I went to the areas like Banda Aceh, for example, on the tip of the island of Sumatra. And we I was there years later, and they were still rebuilding their mosque. And, you know, hearing stories from the locals of of like bodies of bloated people in the ocean. I mean, it was still sad years later, you know, tears are still building up in people's eyes, talking about how many people they lost in that tsunami. And they get a lot of earthquakes there too. Indonesia has a lot of volcanoes just all around it. And, uh, and I helped rebuild some homes take down some broken homes and rebuild homes for people.
0: So you went to Nepal, you went to Indonesia, and I think you also went to Africa during this time of your life as well.
1: Yeah, I did. Uh huh. East Africa to Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and Zanzibar Island.
0: Wow, so that's a really interesting part of the world culturally, but also, I mean, that's where often when people have those images of the, the safaris and the, the big animals in Africa, it's, it's some of those regions as well.
1: Yeah, I went on uh, a few safaris, both in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh,
0: That's really interesting. So those safaris, did you like, you know, book them ahead of time? Did you, how did you, you know, end up on a safari? Do you have any advice for how people would like do a safari if they wanted to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, some people are planners and want everything booked in advance. They want to know what they're doing and don't want any surprises, but I'm, I'm not that type of a person. I rarely plan my trip ahead of time. I just buy a flight and buy a guidebook and go. And one thing I learned while I was over there is that if you wait and don't book a safari and you just go to the safari offices. And I mean, in some of these towns, there's safari office after safari office after safari office and it's there are people that take you you know they get paid if they take you into an office for example um they'll get like a little cut of it so you get kind of surrounded by the locals who are like oh come to my office Ooh, come to my office you know but what we would do is we'd go into an office and we'd sit down and we'd find out if there were any jeeps that had Base left. Um, I had a traveling partner at the time. So if, if there was a Jeep that had three people already booked, but you know, they had five or six seats in the vehicle, they would do whatever they could to fill those seats and they would find the two of us looking to fill seats and we'd be able to get their price down pretty low well. and we would just promise you know we won't tell the other passengers what you charge us you know but yeah
0: a little bit of supply and demand economics there right they have those empty seats and and at some point they're going to be empty if if they're not filled with somebody right so you could get some pretty good deals yeah totally
1: and we'd pay usually 40 50 bucks less a day for our
0: safari trip. Yeah, Megan, that's awesome. I lived in the northern part of Africa. You, know, you were there sub-Saharan. I was kind of north of the Sahara in Morocco and Egypt, but we had a lot of sub-Saharans come up to Morocco where I was. And I think in some ways there's a, a similarity in, in culture. And I noticed it really helps if people can be flexible in that culture and things usually yeah. don't go according to plan. For people that can just kind of wing it and go with the flow and be flexible in, in different places I've been in Africa, it usually suits you really well if you have that flexibility.
1: Yeah, I agree. It causes way less stress if you can just let go the idea of things that are going to happen on a certain timeline.
0: Yeah, plus you know how it is. Some of the best adventures happen with things you didn't even really plan ahead of time or just surprises that come along the way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you could easily get invited to someone's house for dinner that night totally unexpectedly, you know? no matter what country you're in. Yeah. So
0: I'm going back to the safari. Do you have, like when you think of safari memories, is there one specific memory that comes out like a certain evening or a scene you had that was just beautiful or, or very memorable to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are plenty actually when I actually, you know, sit down and close my eyes and think about it. But one of my favorite places I saw was a place called Angoragor crater. And it was a giant, ancient volcano with the caldera in the middle that was so big that the whole safari is based out of this one giant caldera there so it's imagine a giant grassland area surrounded by the rim like a mountainous looking rim around you and there's pockets of water on the inside there are hippos that are in the water and around the shorelines there are Lions, on zebras, eating zebras, you know, herds of zebras. And, I mean, they have, they have all the safari animals. I watched a cheetah run, you know. It was really cool being in this giant crater like that and seeing how much wildlife is there.
0: So basically, this entire safari is within, like, the rim of the, the crater of a volcano.
1: Yeah, so I camp a couple nights outside kind of like the rim there and then in the morning you drive up and over the rim and down in, and that's when you're around all the animals.
0: Well, wow, that's exceptional. And thank you. You know, that was good advice you had for our listeners just to maybe be flexible. You can walk into an office and get a good deal on a safari because I think sometimes people start thinking, oh, international travel is going to cost me thousands of dollars, you know, and it sounds like you said the plane ticket, that's more or less fixed. But besides that, there are a lot of things you can do to really bring down the price of international adventure travel.
1: Yeah. And you can not expect a whole lot too, you know, just so you know, like a lot of the bathrooms, you're using a hole in the ground. <laughs> you know, you, you do your laundry by hand with a bar of soap. You know, I wasn't living a luxurious life, even though I was doing what most people consider luxurious things of like going on safaris and trips like that. I lived where, you know, if you're only spending four bucks a night for a place to stay in Nairobi, you can't really expect a whole lot from it, more than a bed. But I'd bring, I'd bring my own mosquito net to hang. I packed, you know, my own sheet. I take a, a regular bed sheet and sewed it, in half, kind of, kind of made like a sleeping bag out of a sheet. And that way, a sheet is a lot lighter and more compact than an actual sleeping bag, and you can sleep in hot weather with a sheet a lot better. And that way, that would protect me from you know, if there are any bed bugs or anything like that, or mosquito bites and things. So yeah, I would always take a small bag, like a two, three day backpack, not a full size backpacking backpack. Because part of my philosophy too, was if I don't have to separate from my bag, then I know that all my things are safe. So my bag's not so big that it has to go on top of the vehicle or underneath the bus or whatever I'm in, if I can just hold my bag on my lap, then I know that all my things that I want to have with me are safe. You know, I don't have to worry about it getting snatched or lost or anything like that.
0: Right. So if you can have a small backpack that just sits on your lap on the bus, it's, it's with okay. you. That also, I think, gives you the flexibility, right? You know how some of these buses in Africa, they'll say, we're loading, we're loading. And then once, yeah. once they store your bag underneath, you're held like, actually, they're not leaving for six hours and now you're held captive, right? So <laughs> if, if your bag's in your hand, you're, you have autonomy over where you go and what you do.
1: Yeah, really good point, yeah.
0: And, and like you said, it's safer too. You know your stuff is safe. So it sounds like you packed, you started really taking less and less, packing smaller so you could be in more control of, your, of the few possessions you brought.
1: Yeah, and even things like simple things like a first aid kit, you know, like most places you go, they have places where if you need a Band-Aid, you can buy a Band-Aid, you know. Like I might take Neosporn and some athletic tape but other than that, my first aid kit was real minimal too.
0: That's good advice. And that, that kind of fits into what you said about clothing, right? Like you can buy the clothing there. So it sounds yeah. like really like limited what you take. And you, if it's something that you could buy there, you'd kind of give yourself that option.
1: Yeah. And renting things too. Like, you know, I climbed some pretty tall mountain peaks in different countries I've been to. Like in the Andes, I climbed up Cerro del Plato, which gets to close to 19,000 feet elevation. But the thing is, in the nearest town, um, you can rent the gear you need. You can rent a tent, a sleeping bag, you know, crampons even, if you're going over glaciers. So there are options where you don't need to carry anything that's specific for a certain event. You can usually rent it
0: Yeah, that's really good advice because some of that specialty equipment gets cumbersome, heavy, right? And it seems like the airlines are charging more and more for luggage international, you know? So these are all ways I think people can have a lighter load and also save a lot of money if they're traveling internationally.
1: Yeah, totally. One thing I do travel with if I'm going to a place with an ocean is my own mask and snorkel. But like diving gear, things like that, I'll rent that but I do now carry my own mask
0: and snorkel. Just for like hygiene and and safety, right?
1: Yeah. And I know it's, it's high quality. <laughs> yeah,
0: and also, I mean, and we're going to get into some of the diving you've done, but I'd imagine you want equipment that you've fitted, right? And you've tried for you, you you know, it fits, right? You know, it, it functions well.
1: Yeah. yeah. Some people do get a little sketched out about scuba diving equipment because You know, it is life risking to be that far underwater if your equipment fails, but I mean, usually if you're going with a dive company that, you know, is in one of the guidebooks or something, you're, you're pretty safe.
0: You're gonna be safe. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned diving because I definitely wanna make sure we touch on that because you, you actually not only have done a lot of hiking in some of the highest you know, peaks and, and mountain ranges in the world, but you've done a lot of diving as well. Before we get to your time in the Pacific where you did a lot of diving, let's touch base on the Grand Canyon. You spent some time there as well. Was this kind of after you had done a lot of like trail maintenance in the US and then these international trips? What the, the Grand Canyon time, was that a, a, a longer time or like how does that fit into your story?
1: Yeah, actually, Grand Canyon, um, I worked there for three years for the park service, and I was still working on hiking trails there, but it was kind of when I started settling down a little more, where I wasn't moving every six months, I started getting into this routine of, you know, three years at a time. But my employment there, I was able to take a furlough, and I was able to convince my supervisors to let me take off still a few months all the year during for my furlough, um, which allowed me to hike. That's the time when I hiked the Continental Divide Trail for three months. And then the following year, I went and through paddled the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. So I was still moving around a bit, <laughs> even, even though I was working at the Grand Canyon for three years.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like you were always looking for opportunities to kind of get out there and still explore and travel.
1: Yeah, um, always. Still oh, do.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, no, that that's fantastic. So Grand Canyon, I mean, so it, obviously there's, there's the rim and then the, the canyon is very deep and there are ways to get down and really down very deep into the canyon, right? By the Colorado River. Um, were yeah. you kind of up and down trails? Were you kind of, you know, more towards the rim? Were you more towards the river? I mean, where were you positioned a lot of that time?
1: So my work schedule was nine days on, five days off. And working on the trail crew, usually you'd, you'd either hike in or you'd take a helicopter in to where you were working. And then you'd stay there for the nine days and work on whatever trail project you're working on. Oh, most of the time I was the inner canyon, but there were times I'd work closer to the rim. I actually found it really difficult to work on the trails there because there are so many hikers that you constantly have to step aside and let the hikers go through. And then you could go back to crushing rock or whatever you're working on. But it's, it's really challenging. And so that was part of my time there. And then for the last year, I was working on the compost crew. And that required me to hike. I mean, it was I bet 70% of my job was hiking while working on the compost crew, and I'd hike to all the different composting toilets in the canyon and maintain the compost, the human waste compost, and clean the restrooms down there, and I really enjoyed that job. Actually, it might sound a little disgusting, but um, you know, the better I did at my job, the, the better the compost was, and the less it smelled.
0: <laughs> well, and also it sounds like it got you out to different parts of the park because you said there was so much hiking involved. I'm guessing you were yeah mobile pretty. Yeah,
1: early. I'd backpack for work. I'd be out, yeah, going all over the place. And there's bunk houses for employees in the canyon too, in different areas. So I stayed in those sometimes, or I tented. It was a variety.
0: And it sounds like the time in the Grand Canyon, though, in a way, led you to the Pacific and that had to do with some scheduling. it sounded like with with a relationship you were in. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I had met my husband there in Northern Arizona, and we had moved to Grand Canyon together and had worked on separate crews in the beginning, but then we both were on the compost crew. And we were so short staffed that they needed us to work completely opposite schedules. And we did it for a while, but it was really difficult not seeing each other. And, you know, if one person was working in the canyon um, while the other had days off on the rim, the one on the rim had to hike into the canyon to see the other, you know, so that meant we were on our days we were supposed to be resting, we were continuing to hike the canyon, which it's pretty rough terrain. You know, it's it's hiking on rocks and very steep, and it was wearing on our knees after being there for three years. So um, it got to the point where we realized it was more important for us to spend more time together and see each other than it, it was for us to work there. And when we told our supervisors Um, We needed a schedule change. They weren't willing or able to do it, so we decided to look elsewhere. A position became available in Guam, and uh, we applied for that, and my husband, he's a Marine veteran, so he got the position first, and then they were able to find a position for me at the national park. It's called War in the Pacific National Historic Park in Guam, so... We decided to leave the canyon and move out there.
0: So what was it? So Guam, here we are like in the Pacific, right? You're, I I would imagine you're closer actually to like Japan than you are to the U.S. mainland, right? You're, you're kind of pretty far in the Western Pacific, but very tropical as well.
1: Yeah. And Philippines, closest to the Philippines, only about a two hour flight.
0: So what's your first memory? I'm imagining you showed up in Guam after you were given that assignment. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so we um, we flew over there with only what we could take on the plane. So when we left Grand Canyon, we loaded up my minivan. Aaron sold his vehicle. We drove all our things to his family's house in Santa Rosa, California. And then just carry. We, we each had a duffel bag and a backpack. He took his bicycle and I took my accordion. And that's, that's what we moved to Guam with. And we had already found housing, which was really great. There's another couple who worked for this park moving to Hawaii to work for Pearl Harbor just a few weeks before we were arriving. So we were able to take over their rent and live in their space, which was really great. And they left us. We had actually bought their bed and their car and their couch, you know, it was kind of like a package deal there moving into that drove a 1986 Honda Civic, a true Guam bomb, they call them. Say like the second you land port, you, you smell the humidity, you know, that, that just tropical smell probably mixed with a little mold and mildew. And um, Our supervisor picked us up. It was like four in the morning and we, um, he drove us to the house. We were, we were going to be living in and we met our landlord during sunrise and, She's really great. It was, it was a really easy transition at first, like mo- moving into Guam. It was really great.
0: So what um, give us a lay of the land for Guam. I mean, were you more in an urban setting or was it rural? Was it uh, how big is the island even? Just a, kind of a lay of the land here.
1: Okay, so Guam is about 33 miles long by on average eight miles wide. The most narrow part is four miles wide. So it's a pretty small island, especially compared to coming from Grand Canyon National Park. You know, that park is way bigger than the size of this island. And the northern part of the island is, you know, relatively flat with karst. It's like ancient seabed that rose up type of thing. Limestone, you know. And then the southern half of the island is more volcanic, really hilly with beautiful grassland savannas. Um, But jungle throughout the whole island, lots of butterflies and spiders. Um, They have an invasive brown tree snake that eats bird eggs and birds. So there aren't a whole lot of birds on this island because there's so many of these brown tree snakes. That and, you know, with the, the military there back in the 60s sprayed a lot of DDT around the island. Uh, to cut down on the mosquitoes and insects and things. So I think that also took a, you know, the bird population took a hit from that. So there really weren't that many birds on the island, which is pretty interesting. But for what it lacked in birds, it made it learn butterflies. So it was pretty cool, really oh, beautiful. Butterflies,
0: is it quite fragrant? I'm picturing a lot of flowers. Is it like that or am I picturing it wrong?
1: Yeah, a lot of flowers, a lot of tropical fruit trees, probably close to 10 different kinds of bananas that grow there coconut palms all over the place mangoes and avocados man biggest avocados I've ever seen in my life amazing creamy delicious avocados you could grow a lot of your own food there yeah it was really cool
0: yeah, um Megan, what about I'm picturing just amazing beaches everywhere. Were there were, did you have like a favorite beach to go to or was it just kind of like there were dozens that were just beautiful and perfect?
1: You know, I did have a favorite beach and and one thing I love to wear is a bonnet. I don't know if it's because of like coming from the Amish area of Pennsylvania or what, but I've found bonnets to be one of the most versatile hats I've ever owned in my life and my, My mom actually makes me bonnets for me. Whenever I wear one out, she'll make me another one. I get one for my birthday every year. And I named this one beach Bonnet Beach because I'd go out there and there'd be no one else there. So I didn't have to wear anything but my bonnet. And I just love that beach. Beautiful reef. And uh, you can eat the seaweed that grows on the reef too. These little seed grapes are really delicious. And you can take your snorkel and watch all the tropical fish. And the only time I'd see people is if I brought them with me to the beach. It was a really great little cove I found.
0: Yeah, it sounds like pretty remote. and You could just kind of enjoy nature for a little while. Yeah. Megan, what about culturally? I mean, when as far as Guam, I mean, um, the, the local people that are there, like, how do they fit in culturally? Like, what is their culture like? What's their music like in, in some ways similar to Hawaii or, or very different than or, you know, in, similar to different Pacific peoples?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, So the Chamorro people live there and they're they're really friendly people, very welcoming. They have village fiestas. Almost every weekend there'd be a fiesta going on somewhere around the island and people would open their homes up and have giant barbecues. They love to barbecue. They're really good at it. They marinate the meat with soy sauce and vinegar and chili and onion for 24 hours before barbecuing and it's just so delicious (laughs) um so from from what i hear i haven't spent a whole lot of time in hawaii i've i've been to the big island to oahu but um from what i hear tomorrow people are a lot more welcoming they have a more welcoming culture to americans than hawaiians tend to give but we really loved it yeah we worked with uh Besides my husband and I, the rest of the maintenance crew we worked on were all tomorrow. And I mean, they, at the beginning, it was a little rough, you know, we were outsiders coming into theirs, their, you know, and, and just culture, the cultural differences were enough that, you know, we didn't really understand some of the things they would do and it'd, it'd be a little stressful sometimes, but by the end of our three years there, we were a really tight crew and. We loved everybody on it and yeah, it was really great.
0: Are there certain like beliefs or celebrations or even like special words that, you know, people in Guam would use that if you're uh, new there that you'd be a little bit lost at first?
1: Well, one thing is driving directions, directions in Guam. So, you know, being new there, we didn't know where things were, even names of roads or stuff and Google can help a little bit, Google Maps or whatever, but when people would try and give you a directions, they'd be like, you know, where such and such building used to be. You know, we're looking at them like, no, we don't. You know, or they're like, well, turn at the big lemai tree. Lemai is breadfruit. Turn at the big lemai tree and then go behind that white building. And this, you know, just really funny directions.
0: <laughs> I see. There, they're giving you directions where you're like, okay, there's no way I can find where they're directing me because I don't know the, the history or, you know, some of these things.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Megan, thank you so much for coming on GeoTrek and sharing about your travel adventures. Everybody, this wraps up part one with Megan Macalones-Hernandez, where she shared about her involvement in outdoor trail maintenance work and both domestic and international travel. She shared about her explorations in Africa, Asia, both North and South America, including advice on how to find discounted safaris in East Africa. She also shared about relief work she did in Louisiana following Hurricane Katrina and in Sumatra, Indonesia following the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. She also shared about working in the Grand Canyon for three years and the episode ended with her arrival and adventures in Guam. Don't miss out on part two when we'll pick back up in Guam and hear about Megan's travel adventures in Southeast Asia and the tropical Pacific Islands. We'll hear a lot about her diving adventures and exploration of Pacific Island culture. We'll also hear about her transition to living in Death Valley, California, site of the world's highest recorded temperature and a personal tragedy when she lost most of her valuable possessions in a wildfire. Thanks, Megan, for coming on Geotrek, and thanks, everybody, for listening.